That being said, I want to invite you now to look at the third verse of Romans chapter 12. We looked at the first few verses last week. And now, as an application of what it looks like to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, we have the third verse of Romans chapter 12. Paul writes this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I would love to take a moment and pray together with you. And we've prayed often, but let's ask that God teaches us uh, through, through Scripture. Let's pray. God, we've already sung you. And I ask that more and more you would make our songs the true reflection, the longing of our hearts. It's a prayer as well. We need you. This week we have been sinned against and it has left us reeling. We fought bitterness and resentment, doubts that come with suffering. And so God, I pray that you would comfort us through these words. That we've also sinned against others. We've sinned against you and we are in need of conviction this morning. So I pray, Spirit of God, would you bring conviction through these words that where we have really dim sight, where we can't quite see well, that you would give us sight, where we can't hear, that you would dig ears for us, and that you, Spirit, would would teach us, soften our hearts. God, I ask for encouragement, for the fruit of the Spirit to be in abundance, that as we reflect on these words, that we would be true to our own confession, that this is living and active. So be active in us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. The dominating illustration that Paul uses here in Romans 12, which he borrows elsewhere, we're going to see later this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians, is an illustration of a body. And it's going to have a lot of usefulness, but I must confess to you that I have understood and appreciated more these illustrations of the body and the importance of the body as I've gotten older. You may be young right now, so I'm going to to tell you to enjoy a few certain things. Here's what I want to tell you to enjoy. I want you to go and exercise on a whim and not regret it the next day. If you're young, in relationship to your body, and you don't think about it very much, I want you to enjoy eating the worst foods you could imagine, sometimes at two or three in the morning, and then just keep on trucking the next day. If you are young, and you have not thought much about your body, then I want to encourage you to join the sports teams, and go for the runs, and go to the the gym, and flex on everyone. 
Because there was a time when I thought less about my body. It just was a a thing I had. Everybody has one. You just walk around. It's no big deal. The more I've gotten older, I've realized the importance of the interworking of the body. There is the reality of fallenness and breaking down. One of my family's favorite comedians, Brian Regan, had a joke about getting older when he knew he got older was how his doctor treated him when he went to the doctor. He said, you know, when I was young, if there was something wrong with my body, everybody would try real hard to fix it. But I went and saw my doctor the other day, and I told him that my knee hurt. And he just stared at me blankly and said, yep, that'll happen. And then I just had to leave, living like this forever. There comes a point when you realize that your body is not only a gift to you, but how it functions is extremely important. More than that, you begin to realize the interconnectedness of your body. Because if, like me, every once in a while you have a little bit of a weird feeling in your left knee, that's not time to get all excited about the rest of your body that works. You are in danger. Because eventually, old left knee, Mr. Weak, Mr. Abdicating His Responsibility, means that your back's going to have to overcompensate, and you'll begin, you'll begin waddling around one side on a left knee and then the other side with a twisted hip. And you begin to see the reality that the interconnected nature of the members of your body is extremely important. Or perhaps you've gone through worse than that. You had a diagnosis, one area of your body affected by an illness or disease. Perhaps an organ failed and you began to realize, wow, I didn't know that that affected everything else the way that it does. I have to take a pill now or a shot now. I have to do something way over here that really doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just that this isn't working, so therefore that. Our bodies are connected, and the way that they function is important. It just took me getting ancient to maybe think about this a little bit more. You have to count the cost before you go to, to work out. Do I have anything on my calendar for the next two days? Will I be able to walk? Things like that. And it's that illustration, I think, that's going to be a dominant one for us to figure out the way we view the body of Christ. That's what he's going to say. The first application of being transformed in the renewing of your mind is that you begin to see the body differently. You begin to see your place in it. You begin to see the others around you and what it is and what it isn't. If I had to put a a title over this, the first thing we begin to think differently is going to be based on humility. So here's a a thought. This is the way the morning's going to go. What I believe that he's saying over the verses that we just read. Essentially this, that true humility, true humility sees oneness and diversity. Or oneness through diversity. True humility embraces oneness through diversity. That's what he's trying to get at. And we're going to start with the definition. He says, here's the way you're going to get at this. Before you begin approaching the body of Christ, think humbly. For by the grace given to me, he says, and we're going to define that first word, by the grace given to me, he says, everyone should not think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. And if if you're like me, the first thing comes to mind is the idea of humility. And so I want to talk for a minute about true humility. It's what happens. It's one of the chief fruits of a transformed life and heart. You realize that you are dependent on the mercies of God, and so therefore you are willing to see yourself in a new light. But here's one thing about humility. Humility is not only being drunk on grandiose thinking that you are all that. That kind of pride, that rejection of pride is very, very obvious. 
And we should reject this kind of pride, a kind of superiority. If Romans chapter 11 was essentially this statement, don't be proud or don't treat poorly the people who are outside the church. That's what he said. In Romans 11, he's acknowledging there's a bunch of people who have not received Jesus, namely Israel, at least in this case, but stop being so proud. You had to receive mercy. Don't be proud to those people outside of the church. Now he's going to say in Romans 12, here's what humility should be. It should mean that you're not proud toward those who are inside the church. And here is the reality of the situation in our world. There are many people who reject Jesus, reject Christianity, because the biggest thing that they see is a group of pompous, self-righteous people who judge anyone who's outside of the church. In other words, what they say is the biggest problem with Christians is they're proud and they judge everybody who's not like them. There's a huge us and them gap. And as insofar as that's a true charge, we should repent. We should be winsome and gracious to those outside the church. So we should avoid pride toward them. It's not our doing. We weren't just smarter or more spiritual or more kind-hearted that we have Christ. It's mercy. So don't be judgmental to those people outside of the church. That's what he said previous. But the reality of the situation is that there are many who reject Jesus and walk away from the church and refuse to embrace what God has for them, not because of pride toward those outside of the church, but because of the way there is pride in the way we treat one another inside the church. We, having received mercy and grace from Jesus, turn around and compete with one another and devour one another and bite one another and argue with one another endlessly over what we have or do not have. We take what should be the mercy of God given to us and we leverage it for our own purposes and our own power or our own posturing and position. And I believe that what Paul is saying here is that when you have a transformed, renewed mind, you're going to start with humility, not only with people out there, but with people in here. What are we and where do you fit? And so he says, be humble. And true humility avoids the kind of grandiose thinking that says you can do it better than everyone else. It would be the kind of thing that says, I am God's gift to the church. I am so grateful that I'm cooperating with him now because who knows where the body of Christ would be without me. I'm sure that God takes special time in every meeting with the, tri- with the Trinity and points out the fact that I'm so fruitful and productive in his body. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Everyone knows that side of pride. But I'm amazed that he also says in verse 3, the grace given to me, I say, he's enacting. He's being an apostle. So he's, is he being proud that he's being an apostle? He goes on and says, don't think higher than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. So it, he doesn't say, don't think of yourself. Think with sober judgment. Assess. And it turns out when you assess yourself that God has assigned you a measure of faith. And so this reminds me of a definition of true humility that I had received or been taught probably 20-some years ago now, doing missions things. Now, here's a definition of humility. You could take it or leave it. This isn't straight from Scripture, but I think it hits a lot of points that the Bible might teach. The true humility is this. It is choosing to be known for exactly who and what I am. Nothing more and nothing less And knowing that any good in me is the result of God and others. That definition of humility was this. Choosing to be known for exactly who and what I am. Nothing more, nothing less. And knowing that any good in me is the result of God 
and others. I like this definition, and I think what Paul's getting at here is that there are two ways to be proud. One is to put yourself into everything and pretend that you're better and judge everyone who doesn't have what you have. But secondarily, you can be proud by never engaging, by saying, I'm too good for this, or not putting into practice the good gifts that God has given you. There is a kind of pride, a kind of rejection of humility that is drunk on grandiose thinking, and that's one problem. But there is also a kind of proud, a pride that is stuck in a morose cycle of fake lowliness. I'll give, you a, I'll give you an obvious example so you can see what I'm talking about, and then maybe it'll be applied all the way up to the moments when we hesitate to do what God is calling us to do because we don't want to look bad. We don't want to fail. We don't want to be on display. But here's an obvious example of a kind of fake, morose lowliness. Perhaps a kid is a, an unbelievable prodigy. They are in wrestling or something, and you put this six-year-old kid out there, and he's beating 10-year-olds. He just got all the moves. He jumps around like Spider-Man. He's stronger than you'd imagine. He just wins every wrestling match. And somebody comes up and they say, hey, I was watching from over there in the stands and I just want to tell you, uh, Hulk or whatever your name is, Magnus or something. I just want to tell you, you're amazing at wrestling. God has given you a gift. Look what you can do. This is a natural ability. It is not humility for that kid to say, I'm terrible. I'm so bad. Everybody's a better wrestler than me. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm terrible. I'm never going to do this again. I just quit because I'm so bad. You would not praise the child for that. You wouldn't say to them, oh, Hulk, you're so humble. No, what you should say to them is, I, I, th- I think there's something going on. Or I don't know if you're fishing for compliments. If he's already learned at age six to do the old stop, stop, you know that thing. He's doing that, this sort of fake lowly kind of thing. Or maybe you just say to him, no, I think you need someone to help you with a mature and healthy understanding of who you are. And when God has designed you in a certain way, you need to embrace that and figure out how do I live in the world? What has God given me and how do I put it into practice? Those are good questions and answers for anyone. And true humility is going to embrace both. Because I believe Paul has in mind that there are two different ways that the body can be horribly ineffective. He's going to get to the body analogy in a minute. But he's worried about pride because it could affect the body's functioning in two different ways. One, a potential, potential part of the body could overfunction. Imagine every time you go to open a doorknob, your, your leg just gets in the way. I got this, I got this, I got this. I know it's hard to imagine, but like, you know what I'm saying? Every time you try to use something, every time you try to see, your ear flaps over and says, let me look. Imagine that kind of pride, right? You can think about it. The the part of the body that tries to be everything else. However, he also notices that this is an issue for the functioning health of a body. What if one part just says, I opt out? What if one part just says, you know, I don't really want to be put on display. What if I fail? I just won't try. It does you no good. If your eyeballs say, so many other eyeballs see better than me. I'm just no longer going to do this. Instead, they may say, well, I didn't make myself an eye, but I'm here. So let's see triple or whatever. You know what I mean? You you put it into practice and trust that God has given you a measure of faith or a measure of grace to be the thing that you've been given to be. It is not humility 
to abdicate the responsibilities that God has given you because you're gifted. And he's going to go on later and say, if you can lead, then lead. If you're strong, then be strong. If you're merciful, then be merciful. But for you to completely opt out, sitting on the sidelines is no reward in and of itself. Now, it may very well be that you are temporarily on the sideline because you're a pompous, grandiose jerk. And then you'd want to say to yourself, okay, I need to be careful here. I don't want to do that. But you would only be on the side down to be restored and to say, how can I embrace this humbly? So that's idea number one. He says, here's what a renewed mind and a, a new conformity is going to look like in the body of Christ. You're going to have true humility. Then secondarily, though, that true humility is going to be put into practice in a very unique place, in a place that is one body with many members. You ever thought about the body of Christ and how unique and different we are? Paul revels in this in other, in other places. He says, you know, it's amazing who God puts together. He puts together people from every shape and size and every location and every language and every ethnicity. And these differences are going to be put together all the way into the future in heaven. And God has, through all eternity past and all the way into eternity future, been making a people for himself. In many ways, that's a way to say the gospel. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what God has said. He's been putting this into practice from before the beginning of time, all the way through eternity, working to build the body of Christ. I had a a little title over this sermon that I didn't dare use. It was a little too groany. I'm thinking about how God has masterfully and wonderfully orchestrated a creation of a body that right now doesn't function perfectly. One day in the future, we're a little haphazard, we're a little monstrous. And so I had a little working title over this sermon called Faithkenstein. You get it? You know what I'm saying here? And sometimes that's what we are. We're Faithkenstein's monster. In some ways, when you say, what? We're the body of Christ? God's been making and building this? I get it. One day will be glorious. One day, all the good that we're doing now is going to become perfection. One day, all the hints of beauty we have now are going to be blazing, glorious beauty forever. But this humility in the body that God has put together is going to show up by acknowledging and embracing two realities. One, we are one. The first is that we are one. And second, that we are diverse members. So we are one and we're diverse members. And he makes this point consistently. He says in verse 4, in one body. And then the next phrase, we're one body, but we have many members. The members don't all have the same function. Then verse 5, we, though many, are one body and individually members of one another. You see how he keeps using seemingly disparate kind of ideas, seemingly ideas that are in tension? Which, which is it then? Are we one or are we individual? And he says, yes. Yes, we are. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to put into practice true humility, first of ourselves, and then the way we are together. Here's a reality that must be focused on if we're going to do this well. We are one body in Christ. One. This is amazing. Did you know that when you walked in here this morning, that if you are in Christ, the people who are around you are more tied to you and more invested in you and more in lockstep with your eternal reality than any other person who is outside of Jesus, no matter how much time you spend with them. 
it may very well be that I never see some of you again for the rest of our time on earth. But if we're in Christ, we are one in the most powerful, unbelievable way. We're bound together more than the mountains that make up Mount Everest are bound together. All of those who are in Christ in this one body, because we're in him and we're grasped in his hand, it means that the very elements of the earth will burst apart before this body bursts apart. We are one, and Paul insists on us remembering this. I think this is in contrast to, it's not in competition with, but it is in contrast to an individual-only mentality. Let me make a few comments on why this is important. It is important for us to remember that we are one body because the experience of Christianity can be overly individualized. You may say to yourself, why do we gather on a morning like this? Why have Sunday church? Why does God always tell us, come together and be in the room and be one body, be one people? What if Sunday mornings, instead of coming to here and having to see each other and smell each other and listen to each other and elbow each other in the row, what if Sunday mornings were just reserved for extra long quiet times? You got to sleep in, so you're a little more alert. You had some extra time, so you made the pour over and not the brew cup thing. You got your favorite chair. I mean, couldn't you just do that? Why does he insist again and again throughout all of Scripture to say gather, gather, gather? Because we are one. Because the emphasis of Scripture and the reality of our worship is much more we and us than it is I and me or mine. And it is going to be very important for us It is hard to be the working body that we ought to be if we do not think of one another. If we don't press toward oneness and embrace oneness, we will very quickly create a Christian experience that is individualized. You will begin to think, and I'll begin to think, that my experience of Jesus is the most important one. You'll begin to think, and I'll begin to think, that my preferences are the way that all things ought to be, and therefore they should be pressed on you. I think that especially we should be careful of rejection of oneness in Christ because of where we live and the time in which we live. This is not meant to be a political sermon. Commentaries are strictly for the purposes of instruction related to the body. I feel like I need a big caveat, like an investment scheme or something. But maybe you're not aware of this. Do you realize that we live in one of the most individualized, individual personal rights moments in human history? Though we are far from perfect and a myriad of injustices remain, nonetheless, the Western world of the last few hundred years has embraced, upheld, and given to us as people, citizens of the world, more individual rights than almost have ever, ever in the history of society has been granted to human beings. We are individuals. We are pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of people. We are take responsibility for that kind of people. We are pay your own way kind of people. We are property rights kind of people. And now you're suspicious. Where is this going, mister? These have been wonderful gifts in many ways. But they come with potential dangers. And one of the dangers is that we begin to believe that all of life is about our fulfillment and our responsibility and our individual place in it. It is possible 
that in the same way that these political rights have been granted to the Western world over the last few hundred years, that perhaps the teaching and the experience of the church has been more individualized over the last couple hundred years in the Western world than it ever before as well. Do we need one another? Do we insist? Do we see ourselves as connected to one another so that our fighting for the rights of those around us is far more important to us than insisting on our own personal rights. Paul says humility is going to be expressed in an embrace of oneness. We cannot say to the others, we cannot have pride to the others in Christianity and be excited. If you hear of the downfall of a place or a person or a pastor or a church, it hurts all of us. Gloating and pride toward others in the body of Christ is to reject your own body. That's what Paul's trying to say. We are one. I'm going to read exactly where he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's going on again about the body thing. And here's what he's going to say, something very similar. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20. As it is, there are many parts, yet, this is an emphasis, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another." And note verse 26, if one member suffers, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The press toward your individual identity is to start with your part of one body. Remember when I opened with a confession of my getting old? Imagine how ridiculous it would be if the moment that my left knee starts to, to act up. My left knee's feeling bad. Imagine if my back and my hip throw a party, so grateful that they're not like my stupid left knee. Aren't you just glad you're not all creaky and cranky and painful? No, here's what should be happening instead. My back should be on high alert. My back should be like, oh no, one of us is suffering, the left knee's not working, you know that what that means for us, we're going to suffer too. Because it turns out that over the course of time, your body is connected in such a way that what happens to one is in fact happening to the other. And to insist upon a constant separating of the body, and many of us do this on purpose, we do everything we possibly can to find a niche of Christianity where we're all biceps. I just love strength. That's what I love, and we need, to be, we need to be strong. And if everyone is just strong, we'd be better off. What we must avoid saying, of course, is that no one needs to be strong. We got biceps for a reason. But hey, Mr. Bicep, work on your legs every once in a while. Don't skip leg day, right? Isn't that the phrase? If the back is excited for the downfall of the left knee, he's going to suffer. It's just not going to work out. God has created in such a way that these body parts being indispensable to one another means that our greatest joy must be in the joy and health of us all. 
It's actually amazing that the body is such a good illustration. It breaks down at some point, of course, like all illustrations do, but the body's an amazing illustration. You know, my back should be most concerned about my left knee because now it's going to have to hold up and it's going to get back. And it turns out that my back has to do a lot of work that really my stomach muscles, if they were there, should have been doing. And so, you know what I'm saying? This happens all the time. It's an ongoing illustration of the way that we work. I think it's why Paul goes back to it again and again. So the encouragement for us, the question for us is, how do we maintain a life in Christ that does not seek first our own interests? I'm in, now it's a free-for-all but presses toward oneness. Well, I think God has given us the first practice. He says, gather. Gather as much as possible. Secondarily, he says, well, why don't you share a meal together? That kind of thing. Oneness. Come to the same table. Confess the same Christ. Here's other simple things. It is good for you to gather in a worship space like this and to have to hear the person sniffling and sneezing next to you. Reminds you that they're there. It's a good thing to come into a room like this and listen to the off-tune singing around you. Because it is we, it is us, it is one body that is the expression of Christ. It's good to hear the confessions of others and their struggles. It's good to rejoice in salvation and in blessing and in mercy that others have received. We should press back against being individuals only. So true humility takes stock of ourselves, realizes that we need to, to be who God has made us to be, not overly grandiose and not, not stuck in a morose way of living. And it means that we understand our first identity is to be one in the body of Christ. However, I told you there's a tension here. Paul doesn't just say one. He keeps insisting. He says, no, 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 we're one body, but we're many members. And we have different gifts according to the grace that he's given. So one body, but don't do that thing that's so tempting. Because you know what's really hard? It's really hard keeping unity when there's diversity. You ever notice that? Somebody disagrees, you just think to yourself, oh no, couldn't you just, just could please, couldn't you just agree? And there is a fake kind of unity that is often insisted upon. And I think our world rushes to this very, very quickly. So he insists and says, no, 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 you're going to be different, very, very different, and that is okay. And you're going to have to practice humility to embrace the individuality of one another. Don't create a fake unity based on the flattening and the leveling of everything. So to downplay difference is not to promote unity. To ignore strength where strength exists is not to promote unity. To have one set of gifts take take a particular portion of ministry in relationship to another is not a bad thing. In fact, it might be the very thing that promotes unity. When Paul was teaching as an apostle, can you imagine a shallow unity thinker kind of person coming to him and saying, now, let me just, let me just tell you, uh, uh, apostle, is that what you call yourself? Is that what you're, is that what you're going by these days, apostle? Okay, that might be a problem too, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, don't you think that if you're going to exhort people and teach scripture and talk about the Old Testament that everyone should? Don't you think that if you're going to write portions of scripture for the teaching of the church and the building of the foundation, don't you think that everyone's journal should also exist for the teaching and the, the church? Now, what's the problem there? This is a kind of fake and false shallow unity that insists on oneness but ignores the diversity of the gifts of God to those who are individually a part of it. Paul is being humble 
by exhorting and teaching and prophesying. And it is this diversity. This is just one list. You're going to find a similar list in the 12th chapter of Corinthians. I think some people see spiritual gift kind of lists in Ephesians chapter 4 as well. An acknowledgement that God gives people different temperaments, skill sets, desires, passions, fruitfulness, and we must accept it. This is difficult for us because we know how quickly covetousness comes in, competition, comparison. Some people with a good heart believe that unity can only be achieved by flattening and leveling everyone because they cannot imagine a world where competition and covetousness does not exist. And I would say, I understand that. I've experienced it. But the kingdom of Jesus has a different ethic. And it is possible to embrace lists like this. He says, God's going to give in different measure things like prophecy. That's the first one. I should probably be commented on, because some of you think, well, that sounds dangerous. What if I'm a self-appointed prophet? That's one, one reason to doubt that you're a prophet. But if prophecy says, in proportion to our faith, I think this our here, in the Greek, it actually has an, a definite article to the faith. There's a shared faith that we have, and the difference in prophecy from the Old Testament to the New seems to be this. New Testament prophets are held to the standard of the faith once delivered to the saints. So if you have a word that you say, I believe that God is impressing me upon this, I believe that Scripture seems to say this, or I believe that we should move in a particular way, that can be received joyfully, but it's going to be tested against the standard of the faith. It needs to be in accordance with the faith. He goes on and he says something similar, but teaching. Likely he had in mind a public setting, but it is to be cultivated far and wide by Christian men and women alike to teach, to understand something, to see it clearly, and then to offer it to another is a gift of God that is not based in pride. I am so grateful for people who have acknowledged and seen the fruitfulness of the passion for teaching in their life and have taught me things concerning Jesus. I'm grateful for Pastor Phil who for 17 years was faithful in the church that I grew up in. He came when I was six years old. And I believe that through his teaching, I first understood the gospel and went home and was terrified of hell. And said, Mom, the pastor talked about this place. Did Jesus die to save me? Then let's pray about that. I'm so grateful that Phil was not so humble as to avoid his gift for teaching. I'm so grateful for Mrs. Mertz, Nell Mertz, my fifth grade Sunday school teacher, who I believe that in that particular time stirred in me an idea that you could actually study the Bible for yourself and that it was full of endlessly interesting and spiritually applicable things. Grateful for Steve and Kevin and Mark and a million other close friends who have helped to teach me by their lives and by their words. They were stepping into how God made them. I can't get through all of this list, but maybe one more example because it's one of my favorites. He says, in exhortation, if you're a person who exhorts, you should be doing this with faith according to the grace that's given you. I think this word for exhortation could more or less mean encouragement. And one of the most famous examples in the Bible is Barnabas. I'm going to show you Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Acts 4, 36. Did you know that Barnabas was not named Barnabas? It says this, verse 36 of Acts 4. Thus Joseph, that's a but it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, was a son of encouragement. 
a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Joseph was so good at exhorting, so gifted in such a great measure of it, that the apostles began using it as his nickname. Can you imagine that? There's old encourager over there. I mean, I don't even know if we could come up with a good name for this. This is an unbelievable gift for Joseph to be so apt at encouragement of breathing life into people that they just call him that. Son of encouragement, that's who you are, Barnabas. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul himself is a recipient of another member of the body of Christ using their gifts. Acts 9, 26 and 27. Paul has come to know Jesus in a miraculous way. Having persecuted the church, it says now in 26, he came to Jerusalem and he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. I don't know how long this lasted, but it's hilarious. They're just barring the doors. It's like one of those castle doors where there's a person with a peephole and they run away and they're like, it's Paul. He's got stones in his pocket or something. This is a scam. This is a trick. But what changed life for the Apostle Paul is verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him. Barnabas used his gift of encouragement. One part of the body, one member used to encourage another. If Barnabas had refused or abdicated his responsibility... If Barnabas had said, you know, I don't want to step in here. I don't want to be over the top. Who knows what would have come or how long it would have taken for Paul to prove himself. The reality is, is that our particular portion of the body of Christ has been so designed such that God desires and loves the diversity that's present in this room. It means that some of us will have an a deep and an abiding passion and fruitfulness for caring for those who are downcast and in need. When you see the world, you see those who have been left behind. And you say to yourself, I remember what Jesus said. If you give a cup of water or a meal or a blanket to someone, you've done that to me. This is the least of these kind of ministry. And our goal as one body should be to say, we acknowledge and we see and we want you to serve us in this ministry. Some of, you, some of you are as big-brained as it gets. You're just geniuses. The Bible falls apart in front of you. Just, just completely gets into categories and ideas and illustrations. And you can lead seven Bible studies a day if you, if you were allowed to. And we should encourage and say, this understanding for teaching and exhortation should be Something that is used, not put on the side. He goes through the rest of the list. He says, some of you are serving. I love how he puts contribution in there, in generosity. The idea that some of us have been given an ability in business or in finance or in a control of things that means that we're going to be better or more able to be generous. Some of you, he says, can lead. You're able to to see a vision and then to get people there. You should do that. And it's this embracing of one another that gives strength to our oneness in Christ. Now, this can go wrong. Some of us can be so convinced of our individual gifting that we forget it's in service of the one body. So we are, we have self-severed. You're so convinced you're a left arm and other people have been helped by your left arm. You've patted many backs. You've fought off intruders. 
Your left armness is so evident to everyone, you're just convinced your left arm, and you're so convinced your left arm, and so mad that everyone else doesn't see the goodness of being a left arm that you severed yourself from the body. You're just flopping around down the street, just left arm in for Jesus, no body. This is a problem. It is not, it is, it is a, an anomaly, a grotesque anomaly for us to believe that our giftedness is somehow for ourselves. So we should remember it's in service of the body. Secondarily, we should remember that if this body is designed in such a way, we will inevitably encounter people who see things differently than us, who are gifted in different ways than us, and we should encourage and embrace them, not press them off. I have seen many people in their passion to see a particular ministry or giftedness be at the center stage, that they have severed relationships and judged and been proud toward others who just don't get it. In fact, and tell me if you've been a part of these conversations before, no one would dare say, I'm not sure they're a Christian. No, actually, some people, the most, uh, the most strong, <laughs> the most mean of them might say this. But have you been in conversations like this? Look, I, don't know. I, I just don't know how with an emphasis like that they could really say that they're walking with Jesus. I just don't know. And really what you're bringing into question is, If their giftedness doesn't line up with your set of gifts, then, you know, maybe they're suspect. Wouldn't the world be better off if we were all just brain? Wouldn't it be better if everybody just understood that Bible study and information intake is the key to a Christian life and bringing the kingdom about on earth? You see, this kind of pride can seep in not only if you believe that the The gift you've been given is to serve yourself, not in service of the body, so you don't open your hands. You don't look for opportunities that actually serve, you insist, or when you judge others for not being just like you. The question remains, have your eyes been opened to see the good thing that God has done in making strange people like us all a part of the body of Christ? Do you have room for the other? Do you think it's okay that here in this room we're going to see things in different directions and there might be moments when one or the other has to step forward and take more of a center place? Or are we convinced that covetousness and competition and comparison is too powerful to overcome? Therefore, let's level everything. We're going to have an interesting application or an opportunity to apply this passage in the next two weeks. We've been reading and interacting with a a ministry over the last number of months for a residency program that we're beginning called Made to Flourish. And Made to Flourish as an organization, their main thing is they try to help equip Christians to do what they do in their vocations throughout the rest of the week. Their tagline is that they exist to promote faith, work, and economic wisdom. And I've thought about this a lot over the last number of months. It's an interesting idea. Did you know that the best of you, the most committed of you, probably at most spend about five hours a week directly engaged in churchy things? You ever think about that? Five hours a week. Probably an hour and a half here. You get here a few minutes early. You say hey to people. You might even like some people in this room. So you hang around, gasp for 15 minutes afterward, and you talk. You maybe even serve for an hour at a different thing. You go to a Bible study or prep one, that's a couple of hours, and then maybe you attend some one-off social thing that we do. Five hours you've given to be churchy, and a lot of what we do, we might say, like, we want to equip you, and I hope you're wonderful in those settings. But you know what also is true? 
that you carry Jesus with you and the responsibility to be a winsome witness for him into the rest of your vocational calling as well. It means that many of you don't barely have any headspace to think of anything but the budgeting and the finance and the numbers that you are charged with doing. Many of you are giving 50 to 60 hours a week in some other calling, and you are wondering, how can I be a part of the body of Christ in those places? It means that at a minimum, 10 times more of your effort and energy and place in the world is given outside the churchy things we do. And so one of the things that has been pressed or an opportunity and that we're going to take advantage of over the next couple of weeks, we would have done this regardless. It just so happened that Romans 12 seems applicable. One of the things that was encouraged is to take some information. You're going to get an email, a kind of survey. It takes less than five minutes. I promise it's not Publisher Clearinghouse. It's not your insurance company asking how your last visit to the wellness checkup went. But we want basic. It's, it's legitimately, I think, four minutes is what it took. But it's going to help us to answer questions like this. How has God designed our body? What are we good at? What are the things that we're engaged in? I heard about a church that did a survey similar to this. They were in an inner city in a, I would just call it a, an interesting part of an inner city that is not unlike, unlike North Florida. And it came back that greater than 40% of the people in their church were actively and immediately engaged in the arts and music and design. Can you pick out, can you think to yourself like, oh, Seattle is strange, you know, or whatever it is. Like, can you think about things like that? And I thought to myself reading that, that's amazing. I bet trying to figure out how to be faithful to Jesus and pastor those people is a lot different because I don't think that's us. As far as I can tell, I mean, you're hip and everything, but I don't think 40 plus percent of you are dealing with design and music and art. Or perhaps you're engaged in an area of the world that is a massive amount of industry and blue-collar work. Here's a, for instance, my in-laws, the area that they live, areas of Louisiana and Texas are massively, massively impacted by changes in oil price. Such that in pastoring a group of people, if something happens in the oil market, you may have an influx of many, many families being laid off from work, having to unenroll from school. This would become a care opportunity or a pastoral crisis because of something that was impacting the vocational lives of the people in, invested. If you're pastoring a church or a part of a church that 60% of the people are involved in oil, then you'll pay attention to oil. And I wonder sometimes for us, what are we engaged in? And how will we know? If a huge chunk of our congregation is involved in healthcare and there's a major change in healthcare bills or funding or something like that, it seems like it would be wise to know we've been charged to care for one another based on knowledge, to care and shepherd one another based on the, the flock that we actually are. And so we're thinking, well, maybe this would help us to see. And then finally, I think it will help us do ministry. So much ministry that a church does is driven by the professionals who have a job to do it. And there are certain areas of giftedness, even in a list like this, that take center stage. The reality is, is that oftentimes we have a desire and we see a need and we want to accomplish something, but we don't have the means to do it. We don't have the know-how. I can imagine spending years trying to figure out how to care for elderly people, end stage of life, mental illness, dementia, and Alzheimer's. Imagine we spend years trying to figure out how to be effective 
And then we find out, did you know that four members of your church are brain researchers who have expertise in understanding end-of-life brain function? And then more than that, three of them operate memory care clinics that help people with this every single day? Don't you think it would help us as a church to say, wow, I think we could be more effective in what we're doing if more members of the body were engaged and we didn't all just rely on the biceps or the head? So that's a spiel and a pitch to say, please don't neglect or throw away the email spam survey. (laughs) In a small way, I think it could help us. All this being said, Paul went directly to the things that most drive our passions and the most spend our time. How are we gifted? What are we pursuing? And are they being leveraged to serve one another in the body of Christ? That is what spiritual worship will look like for us.